Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. Hello. In this episode, I interviewed Major Mick Cook, who is the Social Media Manager and Online Engagement Officer for the Australian Army. We look at social media in the Army, innovation in the Army, and how the Army prepares for the future fight. This is an episode I'm particularly excited about, so before I start it, I want to go into a bit on why I find this such an interesting topic. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I found it very hard to imagine Australia being at war, um, and until we sent a large peacekeeping operation to East Timor in 1999, I don't remember hearing that much about the Army, and if you ask me to imagine... Australia being at war, the first thing that would have come to my head would probably have been the Tomorrow When the War Began series, which was about a fictional invasion of Australia. And the Australian Army did not get deployed much overseas at all from 1973, which was when we withdrew from Vietnam, until 1999. There were various peacekeeping operations in Somalia, Namibia, Cambodia, Rwanda, and a few other places, but I don't remember hearing about them that much. Then, from 1999, we sent a large peacekeeping operation to East Timor, or peacemaking operation, uh, which involved about 5,500 troops. And since then, the Australian Army has been used extensively to the point that it seems quite routine now. So we went into Timor in 1999, into Afghanistan in 2001, into Iraq in 2003, then to the Solomon Islands in another peacemaking operation, uh, and then at various times, we've gone back into Timor, Afghanistan, Solomon Islands, and are currently back in Iraq again. So for the past 15 years, we regularly had soldiers overseas, often fighting and sometimes dying. For those of us outside the military, this means we should be discussing, you know, when should Australia go to war, when shouldn't we go to war, when is it morally right and when is it in our interests. But for those inside the military they don't get to make those choices, they have to contend with a different question, which is how to be prepared for wherever our elected leaders might choose to send them, and for whatever the future fight, conflicts in the future, turn out to look like. But they're doing this in a society that is quite detached from the military outside of Anzac Day, so the majority of Australians won't have a family member in the military or a close friend in the military, which is very different from what things would have been like back during the Second World War, through to Korea and Vietnam. The military and civilian worlds are two very distinct worlds now in a way that they would not have been for earlier generations. But this is also a time when the internet, when social media, when tools like podcasting and everything like that is breaking down a lot of barriers between different worlds. So I was really interested in what this is like for people in the military, people who are often younger than me at the moment, and how they are facing the challenges ahead and what roles social media and online publishing play. So we cover a lot of these topics. It turns into quite a wide-ranging interview over the next 50 minutes or so. Enjoy. Hello, Mick. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. Cool. Um, So to start with, can you just tell us about yourself and how you joined the Army and what you've been doing in there? Yeah, um, so I joined the Army when I was 18. Um, My only other option was going in to do law. I come from uh, Tasmania and I um, applied for university to do law and then decided in the middle of year 12 exams of all times when you're not stressed out at all um, to look into the Army. And I joined the Army and I went through the Australian Defence Force Academy did a bachelor degree in English and history, uh, focusing on Australian military history and communications aspects of English I then uh, went to the Royal Military College, uh, thought artillery looked pretty cool, and for those who don't uh, know what artillery is, it's basically the modern day version of cannons. Um, joined artillery and moved up to Townsville, spent three years up there as a lieutenant, uh, which is your first rank as an officer. Um, did some a variety of jobs there, working on the gun line, um, working in the command posts, and then uh, being an observer on the hill, uh, locating targets for the artillery to fire on. Uh, then I moved down to Melbourne, did a year studying Arabic at the School of Languages, the hardest year I've ever done mentally, uh, and it's still one of the hardest things um, I think I'll ever do. Uh, after that, I went to Brisbane, 
uh, did some more forward observer um, jobs and then was posted to the UK, uh, spent seven months training with the British forces and then went to Afghanistan uh, with the British forces and I took 14 other Australian uh, men with me and they, uh, they served on the uh, artillery pieces so we had two gun detachments over there in Afghanistan uh, with us and we were in Helmand province in Afghanistan. Did that for about seven months and then uh, came back to Australia and went into a higher headquarters staff officer role. For this, so that's probably more of a, um, a planning role as opposed to a commanding role. And I did um, some uh, targeting um, activities there. Um, wasn't an operational role, so a lot of it was exercising. Um, and a lot of planning, a lot of planning on uh, things like humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, those sorts of activities. Um, what use is an artilleryman uh, doing those sorts of activities? Well, um, it was the planning aspects and my ability to marry up a, an effect with someone's intent. So if the commander said we need to deliver this, um, then I would work out uh, how that effect would best be used. Uh, from there, I then went and be became operations officer. Um, I was promoted to um, major. See, what I've left out here is that I was promoted to Captain Cook for a while. Um, but I don't like to talk about those six years. Um, but I was promoted to major in 2014 and was the operations officer, which is kind of like a chief, chief operations officer in a civilian uh, world business context for an artillery regiment, Townsville, the 4th Regiment, uh, and spent uh, two years there running the current operations, the future planning and the budgetary requirements for that unit. Uh, also deploying to the field uh, quite a bit. And then this year, I posted to Canberra and I am the Australian Army Social Media Manager and Online Engagement uh, Manager as well. So I manage the Australian's presence on social, Australian Army's presence on social media. And I also manage the Australian Army's website in terms of uh, all of our web content providers. Um, they go through me to publish and the content management system gets overseen by myself. Uh, that is me in the Army in a summary. Excellent. So just to clarify, with Afghanistan, we had Australians serving under the British over there. Is yeah. that normal? Uh, so, actually, I, I was going to say in this modern world it's normal, but actually it's it's been normal for a very, very long time in history. Um, so what it was was an embed program for artillery, and we had six rotations of 15 um, soldiers and officers heading over to the UK and then embedding um, in their uh, operations for uh, six months in or six to seven months in Afghanistan. So it's actually a pretty regular occurrence. It's called a third country deployment um, in the Australian US uh, American uh, Alliance system. So we are able to every now and then raise programs where we will deploy with them and they'll deploy with us. So it's it's very, very similar to if someone from the US is posted to Sydney to work in one of our headquarters for a while. The difference is that this was also operating in an operational context. So there's a few more uh, administrative requirements. Uh, obviously, we had to adhere to Australian law, Australian rules of engagement, um, but we were operating with the British and there never really became any um, murky issues because we were all over there as part of ISAF forces and a lot of the times the, those sorts of frameworks are very, very similar. Interesting. Yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting period of time. So it's sort of like an exchange program. Yeah, um, we used to call it an exchange program until a lot of the British guys uh, reminded us that they didn't send anyone back to sit on the beaches um, here in Australia because every uh, British uh, officer and soldier that hasn't been to Australia think that we all just sit on the beaches a lot, um, in my experience. But yeah, so it's, it's like an exchange program, but um, I think embed would probably be more correct term because the British missed out on sending anyone over here. Yeah. Okay, so it's your current role as a social affairs media officer that really interests me for this interview. I've noticed in the past few years the army seems to have become increasingly open to online media and letting its soldiers engage more. So, for example, you have a podcast, Major Claire O'Neill has a website aimed at generating professional military discussions. The army set up a blog, I think, in 2014. Uh, I've noticed a lot of soldiers now have Twitter accounts. How has this come about and is it useful for the army? Yeah, so the way that it came about, I think, is um, just cultural change within wider society. Um, a military is a reflection of the community it serves. 
Um, and in, in some sense, it's almost a microcosm of that community. Uh, the Land Power Forum uh, was established a few years ago. That's our blog on the Army, by the way. Um, so that we can have professional discussions amongst Army personnel, Defence Department people, and the wider public in public so people can see what the professional discussions and concerns are with the Army and how we see our future going. The interesting thing about Land Power Forum is whilst Army people only publish on it at the moment, um, that is not actually a restriction for the forum. Uh, anyone can feel free to submit papers to be published on that particular blog. With regards to the uh, social media use within the Army and Twitter accounts being, as you said, a lot of uh, Army people are establishing Twitter accounts at the moment. Uh, this year we've made it very much a proactive um, engagement strategy because uh, having done some research for my role as a social media manager, we've realised that Twitter in Australia kind of bucks the trend of Twitter everywhere else. And Twitter in Australia is very much a professional discussion, academic discussion uh, forum. So whereas in America where people's Twitter feeds are, you know, you'll have someone discussing um, strategy in the Middle East at the same time that their Twitter feed's getting heaps of stuff about what Kanye and Kim have la done lately. In Australia, people's Twitter feeds generally seem to be filled up with mostly professional discussion. Um, there's only between two and three million people using Twitter, but what we've found for the Army is it's a great way to have discussions because it's a running conversation. And what we've found with recent additions to it is it's not just those people you would expect. Um, so everyone's seen the movie caricature of a regimental sergeant major. Um, RSMs aren't quite that caricature that you see in movies. Uh, however, people probably wouldn't expect them to be the ones jumping on board Twitter, but they are. And they're jumping on board Twitter and they're showing the sorts of work that their soldiers are doing. And they're also showing some of the ceremonial activities they're participating in, like uh, the Fromel's commemorations and posiers. So we've found that it's a very useful tool for our people to talk. And if other people can see our people talking to each other, then they can understand what their military is doing. Uh, we've also got the Army Facebook page, um, and we've got 45 other pages belonging to Army organisations on Facebook. And that's also a great way to inform the community on what we're doing. We're very encouraging of our people to jump on social media. I mean, we live by the Army values. So I'd be concerned if people are using social media in a way that doesn't adhere to the Army values. And if they do, then there's disciplinary or administrative processes that can be followed. So that's for like abusive behaviour or racism or yeah, like anything that. that doesn't stick with the army values. Um, and each of those cases are all handled independently and separately on the merits of each of those cases. Um, but it's nothing that the army needs to shy away from. We need to adhere to our values, but we can also engage on social media. If people misuse it, they misuse it, and we will deal with that. Um, but if the community is on social media, we need to be on social media as well and engage with the community on that social media. Officers such as Claire O'Neill and myself have started our own little projects. Um, Claire O'Neill's project, Grounding Curiosity, is very successful. It's a professional develop for, development forum aimed at junior leaders and junior commanders. And it's all about having them discuss their issues and the future fight, um, whether or not the future fight is something where we see a counterinsurgency operation, a conventional style war, or even just providing humanitarian assistance to a regional neighbour. There's lots of uh, issues that junior leaders can talk to each other about, and she's provided a resource for people to learn and engage with on there. She's also put a few of those um, discussions she's had uh, with academics and military leaders on uh, a podcast as well. And you can find that on SoundCloud and iTunes. There's my plug for you, Claire. Um, and I've, uh, I've got my own uh, podcast, The Dead Prussian Podcast. Uh, as I said before we started recording, it's uh, the most successful podcast about war and warfare named after a dead Prussian uh, theorist. It's probably the only one, though, so not a hard benchmark to achieve. But uh, the idea behind that is um, podcasts are becoming very popular after the success of shows such as Serial um, and Somebody Knows Something. Uh, it's important to show... Um, everyone, no matter how they consume information, um, how important topics such as war and warfare are. And we're talking about the most violent of human behaviours that has a direct reflection upon people's lives. And the community has to deal with all the issues surrounding war and warfare, regardless of whether or not they're in uniform or not. 
Uh, you'll have veterans returning. You know, even as simple as paying your taxes during a wartime may mean that it costs more money for you to support that effort. So it's important, I think, for everyone to understand war and warfare and to continually study it. So I started that podcast up uh, after seeking permission um, in a roundabout way. Um, it doesn't directly reflect my role, but I'm lucky in the sense that uh, the Army Chain of Command is very open to people engaging uh, in these types of areas, especially when it comes to professional development. Yeah, so I think that's pretty much it for Army Social Media, unless I've missed anything. Uh, we're on Instagram as well, and we're also on YouTube. The YouTube channel's starting to go a bit bigger. And finally, of course, the Army Podcast, which is a little project I've been um, co-producing with uh, Captain Cheryl Maskell-Dare, who's actually the, the brains the, and the technology, uh, sorry, the technological whiz behind it. Um, and it was an idea uh, from Brigadier Mick Ryan, who's our Director General of Training and Doctrine in the Australian Army. And he asked uh, Sharon and myself to look into how we could produce a podcast. Um, and we used a particular activity this year, um, our capstone exercise for the Army each year, Exercise Hamill. We used that as the vehicle to generate the content, to provide a podcast that has you know, 10 to 15 minute interviews with a variety of people that can inform the Australian um, people on what they do in the Army. And what they do in the field is probably the most interesting part of what they do in the Army. Um, so that's where we did the interviews. Um, and we've got everything from, you know, last week we released um, one, an interview with an Army physiotherapist who's deployed in the field. Um, you know, she's getting just as dirty and muddy as everyone else out in the field. They're running her team of physiotherapists. Um, but the difference is she's got a table there and dry needles ready to um, treat people if we need to. And you know, the lesson is that there's unique capabilities the Army deploys and then there's things that people can relate to. Um, by highlighting those using social media um, and podcasts, then we can show the Australian public what we're doing. And also, hopefully there's a side benefit that um, anyone interested in a career in the Army can look up through either our Facebook, Twitter, podcast, YouTube channel, and find out what they might be in for if they want to join the Army. So you were talking there, you made mention of junior leaders in the Army. And I've noticed in a lot of these military social media discussions, there's lots of references to junior officers. The role of junior officers has changed. Junior officers now have more responsibilities than they did several decades ago and things like that. What, what actually are junior officers and how has their role changed? Yeah, I guess um, this is an interesting one because it's, it's a fluid sort of concept. So we talk a lot about junior commanders, junior leaders and junior officers and, and they're not all the name all the correction they're not all the same um, but some are the same in name so a junior officer generally will be a junior commander and a junior leader but a junior leader may not be an officer and a junior commander may not be an officer um, so a junior officer generally a lieutenant captain and maybe a first or second year major but generally a seen as a lieutenant or captain um, and they're the they're initial first two ranks of being an officer, and they're put in charge of people anywhere up to um, 60 or so people. Generally, a uh, lieutenant has about 30 people. Uh, a captain will be the uh, more often than not the administrator of a larger team uh, on behalf of a major that commands that team. And a, a company commander um, probably is a term that um, people are familiar with through pop culture. Um, but you also have junior commanders in terms of corporals, bombardiers, lance corporals, sergeants, and they command teams of, you know, eight to ten people. Up, You know, sergeants can command teams of up to 30 people. Um, and then there's junior leaders, and a junior leader is not always necessarily someone with rank. Um, some of the best leaders I've ever met in the Army were actually just private soldiers who just had that drive to get the mission achieved and get the job done. So a lot of the focus is on junior leaders, junior commanders, and junior officers, because throughout history, um, particularly 20th century history and moving to 21st his, uh, century history, the unit of action is reducing in terms of um, field armies. So you know, Napoleon was fielding corps and army. You know, he had several armies um, and he had people in charge of divisions. And junior officers' roles uh, in those times, some junior officers' job was just to carry a flag or to bang a drum or just to be out in front of their 30 people just charging alongside them. 
um, but their geographical area responsibility, their tactical area responsibility was not so large. But now we're seeing larger and larger um, responsibilities being put on junior officers, junior commanders and junior leaders. So it is inherent upon us to make sure that we can now enable them with training and education for those responsibilities. So that's why you'll always see a focus on um, junior commanders, particularly junior leaders and also junior officers. Okay. So a junior commander, an Australian junior commander serving in Afghanistan would like them, might be in, say, in charge of more people or have a large amount of territory to be concerned about, say, than yeah. the equivalent would back in World War One. Yeah, that's that's correct. So you, you have um, incidences that I know of in Afghanistan where I served, and this is uh, Australian-British context. Um, you have a captain that has... Uh, command of a fire support base. He has a troop of artillerymen there, uh, artillerymen and women in this case, um, running the gun line, 30 people. He also has a platoon for local security. It's another 30 people. So this captain's got 60 people now. And then he has the catering guys that cook the food for them, um, which, you know, they're an indispensable asset in my opinion. Uh, I do like my food. Um, but you have them, so he'll have another 10 people there. So, you know, you're getting upwards of 70 people here and he's on a base and his closest support asset might be 50 kilometres away. That's unheard of um, in, in earlier times um, because that level of responsibility wouldn't have been given to that individual. The number of men is about the same. The number of men and women, I should say, is about the same. However, the responsibility and the geographical responsibility and the tactical responsibility for keeping that particular area secure is much greater. You're given, you have less people and more responsibility. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you're trained and educated to be able to deal with it. Yeah. And these are relatively young people? like Yeah, like yeah, yeah relatively. Or... We do have a few uh, what I like to call mature age students yeah. joining uh, the Army late. But no, they are. They're generally people in their 20s or early 30s. Yeah. So relatively junior people. Um, yeah, I, I know that... Um, uh, when I was a junior officer uh, in my early 20s, I probably looked like I was in my early 40s because of, uh, I blame the army for aging me quickly, but you probably blame genetics for that as well. So you were making reference earlier to Exercise Hamill and talking about the need for the army to prepare the, the future fight. Um, what exactly was Exercise Hamill and how does that help prepare for it? Okay, so Exercise Hamill is the capstone exercise for the Australian Army every year. What that means is we have a forced generation cycle in the Army where a combat brigade, which are located in um, Darwin, Townsville and Brisbane, will uh, every three years be put through the uh, readying cycle and then certified on Exercise Hamill as uh, ready to deploy on operations if the government requires it. And our combat brigade now is our unit of action. So Exercise Hamill is that certification activity where that combat brigade will be put through a series of war games, if you will, um, that will then be evaluated and they'll be assessed on their benchmarks. The interesting thing about it is that it requires quite um, a lot of people to be able to make sure that brigade is set up for success to be able to conduct that activity. So you have about 5,000 people um, in a combat brigade um, but an exercise hamel has anywhere between eight and 10,000 people on it because the rest are all supporting it, whether or not it's uh, real-world logistical support or if it's evaluation teams that go out and follow the soldiers around, um, with, whether or not it's people like myself who's on exercise hamel as a public affairs officer, um, dealing with the media and informing the Australian public on what we were doing on Hamill. Um, and that activity can be conducted uh, theoretically in any exercise training area in Australia. Uh, often it's done um, near uh, Rockhampton in Shoalwater Bay, uh, but this year it was done in Coltana near Port Augusta, between Port Augusta and Wyala in South Australia. And it was the uh, first combat brigade from Darwin's turn to be certified. Uh, so they moved into the Coltana training area and we had the 7th Brigade uh, come down and they played the enemy forces or the red force, you'll often hear army people call them. In the army we have friendly forces which are blue force, and we have enemy forces, which are red forces. Uh, Sim Brigade uh, provided the red forces, and they were based in Wyala. Um, and then we went through a series of exercises aimed at testing the 1st Brigade. And some of these were non-combatant evacuation operations, 
Um, so just evacuating people, um, as we've seen throughout recent operational history, Australia needs to go in and evacuate people such as um, uh, Lebanon in 2006 is a good example of uh, safely evacuating Australian citizens from uh, a, uh, an unsafe region. So that happens and then we go through and then we started looking at hybrid warfare or what's called grey zone conflict at the moment. Um, I'm not comfortable with any of these terms, but they are very easy to um, express. But just to clarify, hybrid warfare is when the enemy is what's considered to be usually insurgent or guerrilla forces, yeah, so, but they use technology and such that would normally associate with state forces. Yeah, so hybrid warfare is a little bit different than counterinsurgency warfare. So counterinsurgency, you're up against uh, an insurgent group, whether it's homegrown or foreign. Uh, they use insurgent-type tactics, uh, like we've seen in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq um, post-2003. Um, however, hybrid warfare, the weapons systems and sophistication is, is at a state-based level. Um, so whether or not they're supported by a state or whether or not they are um, supported um, by other non-state actors that have access to high-grade weaponry or technology. Um, you would call... Um, ISIS a, a hybrid threat um, in the way that it is trying to establish a state, but it's also fighting in multiple um, avenues using different types of technology to fight, and its fighters aren't always um, identifiable. That's we had scenarios on the exercise that had you know enemy forces that were clothed in civilian clothes but had weapons hidden on them. Um, we had enemy militias that dressed half civilian, half um, half military, and then we put into it a normal conventional enemy that um, one brigade also had to test itself against. So they went through the full spectrum of conflict, if you will. So that's what Hamill does. And at the end of Exercise Hamill, that brigade um, gets a, a report on how well they've done. And then we move into the next cycle for the next brigade, starts their readying cycle. And then they move towards um, achieving that on the next Hamill um, the next year. Excellent. Um, so tell us about the public affairs side of Hamill. Okay, so this year was a little bit different um, because uh, we deployed two people from the um, Director of Army Communication at Army Headquarters. That was myself and my boss, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Pierpoint. Uh, he's a military policeman and I'm an artilleryman, so it's very interesting for a public affairs team to have those two individuals go. Um, but having diverse backgrounds and planning backgrounds actually helps in the public affairs space. Now, our role on the exercise was not to generate any um, scenario public affairs uh, effects. That was all being done internal. So one brigade was being tested on how well it dealt with the community and the public in the scenario, but that wasn't our role. Our role was to deal with the public affairs of the exercise um, in the real world. And what that means was making sure that we provide the media information on what we're doing. Um, some of that information are things such as safety notices, some of that information is things such as letting them know that we're doing a community basketball event at Wyala, which we did uh, two weekends in a row um, on the exercise. And things such as uh, having Carl Stefanovic come and um, shoot a segment for the Today Show uh, and talk to um, you know, some of our female tank troop commanders. Um, he got to shoot a rifle. He got to go through and do a simulated attack. Um, so that's kind of what our role was in public affairs. Um, we have our own public affairs assets, our military camera teams, and they go out and they film the footage where we can't, um, it might be too dangerous to give access to uh, an embedded media. We also, on that, embedded some media on this exercise. So we had some people from the ABC come and be embedded with us. We had some people from Channel 9 in South Australia, and they came and were embedded with our soldiers. And generally about 24 hours to 48 hour period would give journalists some would give them a space in a car um, and give them some food and say, there you go, cover your story. And uh, you saw that a lot um, in the past 15 years of conflict, journalists being embedded, uh, especially with US forces. Um, so we did that on Hamill as well. And basically the idea behind a public affairs team being on Exercise Hamill, it's our biggest activity for the year and it's an activity that people should know about. So you give it a public affairs team uh, and we go forward and, make sure that people know and see um, what we're doing on the exercise. And that way people can understand what the Army is providing for them. Thank you. 
So you're also involved with a group uh, called Defence Entrepreneurs Australia, which uses social media to discuss professional education and encourage innovation within the military. What can you tell us about that? Um, so we like to call ourselves a group of disruptive thinkers. Um, we, we're a group of uh, all majors at the moment, um, or we started off as a group of majors. Uh, we just finished up our time as company commanders, battery commanders, squadron commanders, and uh, Claire O'Neill, Major Claire O'Neill, had an idea, um, she ran by a few of us, about um, establishing an organisation called the Defence Entrepreneurs Forum Australia, which um, is a sister organisation to a, a US enterprise um, that is about encouraging innovation within the Australian Army, uh, outside but respectful of the chain of command. And our focus this year is on junior leaders, which we've discussed um, already today. Now, the reason that we're doing it uh, outside the chain of command is because the Army already has some very, very good uh, procedures for bringing ideas into the innovation um, realm. But as with any large organisation, there's always bureaucracy to go through. So what we're looking for are the one percenters on the outside, the periphery. Um, so this forum is uh, going to have a conference in December on the 8th and 9th and there'll be a series of keynote uh, speakers there from people talking about the future fight, uh, people talking about how to innovate, um, people talking about implementing innovation. And then at the end of the um, conference there's going to be something similar to what you'd see on a Shark Tank type TV show where these ideas that have been pitched to us will then be pitched towards a panel that's going to be chaired by the Chief of Army. Like Dragon's Den? Very much like Dragon's Den. Um, now, the ideas are being pitched to us already. So we're using social media to engage with these people. We've got a website that's set up through groundofcuriosity.com. Um, so go to groundofcuriosity.com, uh, look for Death Australia, that's D-E-F Australia, or in Army speak, Delta Echo Foxtrot. And then we move... Uh, into a blog section there. We've also got a couple of videos on our YouTube channel and on that page. And more importantly, our Facebook page is where we do a lot of engagement as well. And what we're doing is we're trying to encourage this idea of innovation and encourage junior leaders to do things like I started a podcast, Claire started a professional development website. And we're trying to grab these ideas and, and encourage these junior leaders and junior commanders to um, feel that their ideas are valid um, and apply them to the process. So they pitch their ideas through uh, and those people that end up getting selected for the conference and then getting their idea selected by the panel will then be given an idea sponsor who's a higher ranking military officer in the army and they will be responsible for um, ensuring that this person is enabled to try and bring that innovative idea to fruition. It's very, very interesting. We've found Twitter's also been quite handy for it because a lot of Australian officers are now using Twitter, so a lot of people are chatting about Defence Entrepreneurs Forum on Twitter as well. And what we have found is that we've also been able to help people who have come up with ideas that actually fit some of the current processes the Army already has. So instead of wasting their time and saying, turn up in December and pitch the idea, we're able to just direct them straight to the um, chain of command where that uh, idea can fit into the system and then they've been able to start implementing uh, their, their plans. No, no idea yet has come to fruition, but what we're seeing is a very positive way for junior commanders to engage with their professional space and seek uh, to improve um, what they see as being an issue for the future fight. Thank you. And do you encounter anyone arguing that you know, innovation disruption, entrepreneurship and such are just sort of kind of business buzzwords and not really something the army should you know, spend its time on? And how do you respond to those sort of arguments if you do encounter them? Um, so I can only comment from the entrepreneurs forum side of things because I, I don't work in the innovation side of the army. So I'm not sure if the army's received particular flack, but uh, the entrepreneurs forum and our role supporting the army, we've had a few questions. Um, there's been uh, some blog posts about you know whether or not it's an entrepreneur we want or an, or an innovator. Um, armies 100% need innovators. Um, and a disruptive thinker in the army 
is not necessarily a disruption to the army. The, di the difference being it's the same between a contrarian and a critic. Um, you've got to understand whether or not your advice provides value or is just criticism for nothing at all. We don't want disruptive thinkers that are just there to disrupt things and not value add. We want disruptive thinkers that are there to think differently and value add. And that's the idea of being respectful of the chain of command. This is not a snub to the army and saying we can innovate better. It's this is how we're going to support the organisation by innovating. Uh, it's the entrepreneurial part that is the catch. Um, so there have been some very um, well phrased arguments that entrepreneurs are generally about turning an idea, selling it on and then moving on to the next thing. Um, but that's the modern incarnation of entrepreneurs. Um, if you go back and look at the American Civil War, there were quite a lot of military entrepreneurs there. Um, and there's been an entrepreneurial spirit throughout militaries. Innovation within World War One. if you listen to, uh, I think it's episode six of my podcast, um, Innovation in World War One. it might not be, it's uh, Dr. Amy Fox-Godden is a British academic who studied innovation on um, World War One and the British forces in particular. And one thing she's identified, if you take the way that innovation worked in the British military forces, where you have your change agents, your project sponsors, your innovator, it almost sounds like a business model anyway. Um, so yes, they're business buzzwords, um, but they have meaning and the positive aspects of those meetings are the ones we're after. Are we after people who are trying to sell the latest army, uh, the latest idea to the army and then run away? We're not, but we're not targeting those sorts of people. We're, um, we're looking at talking to people that are in the organisation, trying to find out what great innovative ideas they've got and to see whether or not they can benefit the organisation. Um, and that's the entrepreneurial spirit we're trying to encourage. Yeah, so in these sort of Australian military discussions on social media about doctrine and tactics and the future fight and everything like that, to what extent do you have the wider public engaging with that? And also to what extent do you have military people from other countries like America engaging in that? Uh, so what I've found is that at an organisational level, we're finding um, it being very formal um, in some sense and being very informal in other senses. And what I mean by that, like our Facebook page, you know, we have 314,000 followers of our Facebook page. There's only 50,000 people in the army, give or take uh, five or so thousand. So, you know, majority of those people engaging with us are not um, from the military. So that's good to see. On Twitter, what we're finding is that it's a lot of um, people from the military, a lot of uh, veterans or academics engaging with us in the Australian context. And in the international context, a lot of academics from the UK and a lot of um, soldier scholars from the US uh, are engaging with us. And also you get some academics from the US as well, um, some very prominent ones as well. So where the engagement actually really tends to take off is, you know, we discussed before how Australian um, officers and soldiers are starting to engage on Twitter on a personal level more. Um, that's where the discussion's really taking off. And then from that, you start seeing Australian officers such as Brigadier McRyan, uh, Major Tom McDermott, uh, Major Claire O'Neill, uh, writing for some of these online um, journals on professional military topics, such as the Strategy Bridge. Um, and also writing for the Australian Army's Land Power Front. And, you know, that doesn't hurt um, the Australian Army that we have officers that are authoring papers in international online journals, um, the Australian Army's public blog, and also, you know, blogs on Claire's site or the Defence Entrepreneurs Forum, Australia's site. So we're getting a lot of uptake in terms of professional discussion amongst individuals from our military, uh, overseas militaries, but also in the academic world as well. Um, from an organisational point of view, it does tend to be the Australian public that it deals with when it's broadcasting as an organisation, which is actually to be expected. You expect you know, the Australian people to be interested in the Australian army as a whole and someone interested in military ethics overseas in the US to be interested in what Major Tom McDermott's writing about military ethics on... Um, you know, the Land Power Forum or the Strategy Bridge or Defence Entrepreneurs Forum Australia. And to clarify, the Strategy Bridge is an American publication set up by Nate Finney. Yep. Yeah, so the Strategy Bridge 
Um, there's a few guys there that work at the Strategy Bridge, Nate Finney, uh, Rich Gansk, uh, Ty Mayfield, Eric Murphy, uh, anyone else I've forgotten uh, who proofread my last book review I put on the site. But it's a, it's a, it's a National Security Military Affairs uh, online journal. Um, there's another one, War on the Rocks. Um, that's run by a guy named Ryan Evans. Uh, who served as a civilian uh, advisor in Helmand Province in Afghanistan on the base that I was on um, and advised our battle group headquarters a couple of times. Um, so this sort of discussion is 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 getting quite up there. Uh, there's the Military Writers Guild, which is an organisation supporting people who write. Um, and that was also set up by Nate Finney, I think? Uh, he's involved in it, definitely, and Aidan Dobkin does the podcast for them. Um so yeah, Nate Finney is uh, involved in everything. I found he's a very, very prolific um, encourager of professional networks. And that's an example of uh, how we can engage with the wider community in this area. You know, Nate's a very good example of that. And Brady McRyan is Australia's um, example of something very similar. And he's, he's actually, he caught up with Nate on his last trip over to the US. Um, and he's also a member of the Military Writers Guild and he's written on the Strategy Bridge. And he was involved in the establishment of the Land Power Forum. And he's been in your podcast and, and Claire's podcast. He's been my podcast, Claire's podcast. So what we're finding is people are engaging in these networks. And once they start engaging, they continue to engage because they're getting professional fulfilment from having professional discussions. Um, so, yeah, I guess for the Australian Army, the, the good thing is that our organisational level engagement is working with the Australian public, but also our individual level of engagement that our people are trying to have and the, the engagement they're seeking on social media is having rewards for them as well. And turning back to yourself, tell us about your own podcast and what made you set it up. Okay, so um, the Dead Prussian podcast is uh, my podcast. It's about war and warfare. It's named after um, Karl von Clausewitz, who wrote uh, On War, a book that was published after his death and was a, a rationalist philosophical attempt to um, study war as a phenomenon, I suppose. Um, it's a really, really hard book to read. Um, read books one and eight of it if you are going to read it and you um, don't think you can get all the way through it because book one is a real complete one, Chapter one from book one is probably the only real complete chapter before he died. Um, but the podcast is aimed at you know, having this discussion about war and warfare because you, know, you just need to turn on the nightly news to understand how prevalent it is in the lives of the world uh, at the moment. And you know, it's everywhere in the world. Um, we may not be fighting a war here at home, but we are fighting wars overseas. And for me, I'm a podcast um, consumer, so I thought... Um, over the Christmas break about some conversations I had with people and uh, as I was telling you before we started recording you know I, I found myself um, not reacting well to one of my junior officers who was learning via audiobook an abridged audiobook of On War I sort of had a laugh at him um, and then I thought about it later on I was like well that was probably not the best way to encourage him in his learning what I wasn't understanding was that he didn't need to pick up that book to read it to make it resonate with him he was the sort of person that consumed his information through audio means. Um, that, um, plus seeing there was a gap in the market for podcasts, and also being told by my wife that after four years of doing two postgraduate degrees, I should have a year off studying, I thought that I'd have um, a few hours to spare each week. I didn't really realise how many hours a podcast would take. Um, but I now, have discovered that too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that um, I had a sympathetic ear in that regard. So I, um, I started this podcast and uh, it, what it aims to do is um, bring in expert opinions on aspects of war, uh, to study it, to understand it, to consistently seek to define what war is. Um, that's a question I ask every guest that comes on the show at the end, war is, and they have to finish it. It's better if they can finish it in 140 characters so we can tweet about it later on. Um, and the aim of the show um, is not to ever find a definitive answer to what war is. But to make sure the discussion's out there, because um, I, as a veteran, have been um, the physical embodiment of a national security policy and understand what that means when someone makes a decision uh, on national security policy and what that means for someone at the at the sharp end. Um, that's a term the military uses for the you know the front line, I suppose, is a, a common term. 
Um, so it's important for us all to discuss war and warfare and understand what it is because it is the most violent of human behaviours that is out there um, and it is something we need to understand, maybe hopefully one day abolish, although I don't hold out hope for that. Um, we've been fighting wars for over 5,000 years and we're probably going to keep fighting them for another 5,000 more if we're um, going to stick around on the rock for that long. Um, so what I do, I cold call a lot of academics. <laughs> um, sometimes I, I get people to introduce me to them, but um, what I like to talk about is their particular area. Um, so today, for example, I was at the War Memorial talking with uh, Reese um, Crawley about uh, Gallipoli and the failures of the August campaign, uh, the August offensive it was termed at the time, and then the subsequent withdrawal of um, the Dardanelles uh, forces, uh, correction, the forces in the Dardanelles. So the podcast has actually taken on a, a little bit of a larger listenership than I originally expected. I expected it to be about 50 people for the next five years, um, but we've got a few more people than that tuning in. Uh, I try and use a bit of humour to make the information a little less dry. Um, not saying that any of my guests who happen to be listening to your show um, are dry, uh, and it's about making their content uh, accessible to a wider audience, and that's what that's what I want to do. And uh, oftentimes I use lame dad jokes like the one just before um, to break up some of the drier topics. But we've talked about some amazing things on there. We talked about, you know, Klauswitz's wife was our first topic about how she published his book. Uh, we talked about um, Exercise Hamill. I wanted to understand how an army learns, so I talked to the Director General of Training and Doctrine in the Army. Um, so we go through these um, varied topics. It's, it's not about one thing. There's no set pattern on the guests I get, unless there happens to be an anniversary of a battle. Um, or a campaign, and I can manage to line up that guest with the anniversary, but um, it doesn't always happen that way. So I've noticed you often say, and military people often say, war and warfare. What is the distinction there? So war is the endeavour, and warfare is how you go about it. So warfare is how war is waged. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, and you've summed it up better than I could. It is exactly that warfare is how war is raged. So you can be at war, and uh, the way you are executing that war is the, the warfare. Okay. And what books on war and warfare are you reading at the moment? So at the uh, moment, um, I have to say I'm reading uh, Reese Crowley's book because he gave it to me straight after our interview. Um, and I'll read that straight away because I think it's fascinating. Anyone who does a revisionist history of Gallipoli is fascinating because... Whilst it's important to valorise the efforts of the um, the Anzacs, it's also important to remember uh, and understand what led to some of the decisions that were made and understand what was, um, I suppose, the ground truth um, of it rather than some of the legend that has grown out of it because of our national attachment to um, that particular uh, campaign. But... The other book I'm reading at the moment, it's actually a book review for the Australian Army Journal, um, which is good because me and I got a free book. Um, it's called Margin of Victory, Five Battles That Changed the Face of Modern War. It's by Douglas uh, McGregor, and uh, it's published by the Naval Institute Press, I'm pretty sure. Um, so I'll be um, reading that book now, um, and it's a case study of battles. Um, the last book I read was a case study of military deception techniques. And I found that quite fascinating. So I try and read quite widely um, on war because, well, I guess it's my bread and butter uh, in understanding this sort of stuff. But also, I think if you read too many, and we've talked about this before, if you read too many um, biographies or hagiographies about um, the surge uh, or the recent conflicts, you'll uh, often find yourself um, with a little bit of... Um, uh, post 9-11 fatigue in terms of your reading. So I try and read as much as I can, uh, as widely as I can. And the surge refers to the increase in troops in Iraq. Yeah, so two, 2008, um, the surge uh, led by General David Petraeus, um, which was the campaign they thought uh, had solved some of the issues they were having in Iraq. And it was turning uh, the sons of Iraq um, towards the coalition forces um, to try and defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which um, ISIS is you know, the modern iteration of that particular um, organisation. 
and that led to some quite hagiographic writing. Yeah, journals it, being it, it genius war intellectuals who solved everything. Yeah, it 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 launched the era of the modern scholar uh, scholar soldier, where um, counter insurgency became the flavour of the uh, of the decade, and you know counter insurgency is one of those techniques in warfare um, that can be used to solve a particular conflict issue. Um, but because of the success they had over that short period of time, uh, it became very, very popular. And um, there's a lot of people who uh, made careers out of that period of time. Um, and there's also people who have turned back and they've done some very hard thinking and writing on it. I mean, David Kilcullen's work on his time being one of those um, key advisors uh, for that particular surge and his reflection on some of the, the successes and also the failings um, that they had um, is a good reflection of how you know, it's important to understand what you did well, but it's probably more important to understand what you didn't do well so that you can correct that next time. Yeah. All right, and so uh, wrapping up, what advice would you have for any of our listeners who want to learn more about war and warfare? Uh, first point of advice is listen to the Dead Prussian podcast. Um, Obviously. You can find me on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Podbean, Libsyn. Um, <laughs> um, we're also on a thousand other different podcast apps that just... Uh, take content uh, anytime they want. Um, what I think the most important thing is just start reading, um, start listening, um, engage with the material. If you know a veteran, talk to a veteran about their experience. Um, you'll find it's very fascinating. I spoke to my wife's grandfather about his time in Vietnam and it was almost like he was trading the same stories I had from Afghanistan. Um, but engaging with the topic, much like anything else, requires you to engage with it on your terms. So if you are a avid book reader, go to the nonfiction history section and start reading about um, military history. If you are uh, an audio or oral listener, um, download my podcast, download the War on the Rocks podcast, the Military Rise Guild podcast, the Modern War Institute podcast, um, the War Studies podcast from King's College London. Um, just engage with the material in a way that serves you and then you will learn more about that topic because you're engaging with it on your own terms. Excellent. Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's great.